0: Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Baum a Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This week we're going to talk about Germany, Europe, the Euro, and economic nationalism.
1: We've brought in German Zettelmeyer. German is the Dennis Weatherstone Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: He's also a colleague of Chad's.
1: German is a macroeconomist. And he's a former director general for economic policy at the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy. He was there from 2014 to 2016. German, hello. Great to be with you. Why did it take you three years?
0: (laughs) (laughs) OK, awkward. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to state some facts about the German economy. And then I'm going to ask you what we need to understand about the German economy to understand those facts. OK? So fact one. Germany imports goods and services worth around 40% of GDP. Fact two, Germany exports goods and services worth around 47% of GDP. So that's a lot. The number for the US is about 12%. Fact three, related to facts one and two. In 2018, the difference between those two, Germany's trade surplus was 7% of GDP. So what's so special about the German economy that those numbers are so big? How did we get here?
2: Right. So there are two sort of sub-facts in your facts, and you alluded to it already. So one is the German economy is very open, trades a lot. And the other one, it has this very big surplus. So the first fact is interesting, but perhaps not super out of the ordinary. So there are many small open economies that trade a lot. I think given its relative size, Germany might be extra open. But I don't think this is what people are particularly puzzled about. Now, the other fact is what really bothers people. So where does this enormous current account surplus, this excess of exports over imports come from? And the truth is no one really knows. I don't really know. But there are some informed hypotheses one can talk about. And just to give you the bottom line, it's pretty easy to understand why the German uh, trade surplus and current account surplus grew so big. It hasn't always been so big. It basically grew enormously since the late 90s. What is really
1: difficult to understand is why it is still so big. So why did it grow so big? What was Germany going through, you know, in the 90s in particular that may have triggered some of this? So, you know, Germany is an industrial economy. It's always
2: exported quite a lot. It always had a bit of a surplus, which has to do with the fact that it saves a lot. So as a country, we tend to consume less than we produce. And that means that we have to export more than we import or we end up exporting more than than we import. Now, in the 90s, something extremely unusual happened, which was German unification. And German unification was bad for German competitiveness. So it brought in a whole bunch of people who were not very productive in the east of Germany at a very overvalued exchange rate. It also was sort of a very testing time for the public finances. And as a result, Germany ended up at the end of the 90s with quite strained public finances, with a deficit, and with a not so competitive uh, position. So the trade surplus in Germany actually disappeared briefly during the 1990s, which was historically unusual. At the same time, you have the euro come into being, which, you know, of course, politically is partly connected to German unification, so politically In a sense, the euro is viewed as being the tit-for-tat to allow Germany unification to go forward. So Germany becoming a unified country again and hence more powerful, but at the same time giving up some sovereignty to the rest of Europe. So at the beginning of the 2000s, Germany finds itself in quite an awkward position. Unemployment is high. At the same time, in the euro, now the... Competitive position, the structural position of the southern countries suddenly looks much better than it has been in the past. And this is because the euro is very widely viewed as being the end to some very long standing weaknesses in those countries, particularly their inability to sort of commit to solid German-style monetary and fiscal policies over the time. And so, you know, with this fundamental improvement in the European periphery as a result of the euro, capital flows from Germany into the periphery. And that makes the German problems worse. So you actually have a recession in Germany at the beginning of the euro. And that sets a bunch of reforms in motion these reforms end up improving German competitiveness just at the time when the global financial crisis hits Europe and the world, when capital reverses from the relatively riskier bits of the world and of Europe to safe havens like Germany or the United States, and when everyone in Europe suddenly discovers that actually the South doesn't look so great, that they have actually invested poorly, and so, you know, from one day to another, the South looks a lot less competitive and Germany looks great because they did, not only did they not have the problems uh, of the South over that period, but they actually did some, some real reform. And so that makes the surplus grow. So this is one fact, a euro-specific uh, fact. Then there's something, or perhaps two other factors that are largely unrelated, but they work at the same time. So one of them is the China shock. The China shock usually has worked, particularly in the US, we know that debate has been covered very extensively in the academic literature, to the detriment of the manufacturing sectors of the advanced countries, because they now get a lot more competition by Chinese producers for the same good. Now, some of that effect also was true for Germany. But In the German case, another effect also was very strong, which is that China did not just compete with Germany in export markets for manufactured goods, but China also needed lots of German manufactured goods to build their factories in the first place that would make them competitive vis-à-vis countries like the US or Germany itself. And so by sheer luck, if you like, or historical tradition, Germany was very strong, very competitive in a segment of the manufacturing sector, which China really needed and could not produce itself at the time. So that's basically the second factor, extra demand for German exports driven by countries such as China. And then the third factor is that there was a sense in the mid-2000s that the demographics problem was really going to hit Germany. So obviously, you know, these demographics are fairly predictable variables, but, you know, there are papers that argue that the national consciousness of a demographic problem started to rise in the mid 2000s. And with it, sort of a sense that debt of the country as a whole
1: was excessive, that household savings uh, had had to go up. And so by demographic problems, here you mean Germans are getting old. That's right. Germans
2: are getting old. So for all these three reasons, namely doing some reforms, having some of European partners lose competitiveness as a result of the euro, worries about demographics, about aging, and then this ambivalent effect of the China shock, which is good for some of our exports. For all of these reasons, and it's several reasons, right? There's no one answer, the surplus really, really starts to go up in the early 2000s. And then it continues to go up right into the late uh, 2000s.
0: Can we talk about how to think about currency valuations in this context? So some of the arguments you hear are, uh, so one, you know, the US dollar, the British pound were both overvalued partly to do with reserve currency. You know, there are claims about currency manipulation with the Chinese buying lots of US dollar-denominated assets. Meanwhile, in Europe, the euro is being, you know, held down for Germany. You know, if it was just the German currency on its own, it might have appreciated more. And so because Germany is in this currency union with a bunch of other less competitive countries, its currency doesn't appreciate as much as it should, and that kind of gives it this little kick that the others don't have. What's the right way to think about that?
2: So, as I said, the puzzle is why did the surplus not reverse at a time when capital started flowing back to Germany from the south, when they had realized there was a demographic issue, but that wasn't going to keep driving up the surplus. And so, you know, when Germany was in a position to, in a sense, consume the fruits of its reforms of the earlier period and as you quite rightly say one of the reasons why it did not reverse quickly was the membership of Germany in the euro so you cannot really sustain a surplus of 789% in a floating exchange rate regime over a period of 10 to 15 years right so unless there are really extraordinary circumstances why capital keeps flowing in, usually you would see at some point an appreciation of the currency. That is, you know, all this extra demand for German products would push up the value of the German currency and that would reduce its competitiveness. Now, that effect by design wasn't there. And of course, the value of the euro as a whole was relatively depressed by the fact that the euro included countries that were not very competitive. So in that sense, not only was Germany in a currency regime that made the value of its own goods stickier because it could not simply appreciate, but it happened to be in partnership with countries that were not doing that well. And so what came out was some kind of average exchange rate, and Germany was hyper competitive relative to that average. Now, the thing is that Even that story is not enough to explain why the surplus remained so high and, in fact, kept growing until about 2015. And the reason is that at some point you would expect wages to react or you would expect consumption to react or investment to react. So think about it this way. A current account or trade surplus is never just the result of superior export performance. All that superior export performance does is it gives you lots of resources to buy stuff, right? You sell abroad, you earn money, and you can afford more as a result. So the real puzzle is why Germany saved what it earned abroad rather than using it for investment or consumption. Why did Germany hold back so much? And that puzzle I don't think has been fully fully addressed. So one can argue it has to do with the nature of German labor market institutions. So for some reason, the German wage system keeps wages relatively low. That is one possibility. So unions were not particularly militant. Uh, They were cautious. Uh, One can say that there were barriers to investment in Germany and that this maybe had to do with the role of the state that, on the one hand, didn't want to invest very much itself, perhaps again, out of an overabundance of caution, trying to keep the public deficits low, or in fact, do the opposite, generate public surpluses. One can maybe say that there is skepticism in Germany towards the types of solutions that the UK used during the Tony Blair period of trying to use public-private partnerships to raise public investment, that the investment decisions are very decentralized, many levels of government, very big role of the municipal level, and these municipalities are particularly badly placed to innovate and in how they invest. They don't want to deal with the private sector. So you can sort of put together a set of stories, but on the whole, it is still puzzling why this surplus still big and, and in fact, continued
1: rising for a while. Can I ask you about one of those? So on the wages dimension in labor and unions, during the same period of the mid-2000s, you do also in Europe have this eastward expansion of additional countries coming into the European Union. A lot of German industry reorganizing their supply chains to take advantage of access to lower-cost labor in those places. Is that likely to have contributed to this pressure that unions in Germany were feeling not to demand wage increases that were too big because that might have exacerbated the flow of jobs outside of the country?
2: Yes, I think that's an entirely reasonable story. I think that was part of the story. You have a lot of wage moderation in the late 1990s, partly as a reaction for unemployment, and this wage moderation actually precedes the German labor market reforms. And so one story that explains that was indeed that by that time, the integration with Eastern Europe was in full swing. And so that was very much on people's minds. One of my first, actually my very, very first job out of university was to do a study for a consulting company in 1990. This was in the summer of 1990 that wanted to teach German companies on how to build supply chains with the East. So it was a very hot topic and one that was almost instantly in the minds of German industry and German workers.
0: Going back to the current account surplus, do you think the German government should be trying to reduce it?
2: Yes. So I think they should be trying to reduce it. Now it is not an easy argument to make in Germany because the current account is often viewed as a virtue. So traditionally, being good at exports from a German perspective was about equivalent to winning the World Cup. In fact, you know, regularly you got these headlines in the German press saying we are world champions of exports. We're the world's biggest exporter. This was cherished. And then you get this confusion that people sort of jump from exports to the current account without realizing there's a step in between, which is they're failing to import. And is that actually a wise decision or not? And so, in my view, the fact that Germany is not consuming enough, not investing enough, is a bad thing. Uh, It could afford to both consume and invest more, and wages could be higher. You know, there are disparities in Germany, social problems uh, in Germany, and there is a big shortage of public investment and private investment in Germany. So for all these reasons, I think that the current account should be reduced through higher uh, investment. Now, the question is how you do that. And so this was a question that I was actually tasked with when I was working for the German government. So there was a recognition as of roughly 2013, that certainly investment in Germany was too low. For political reasons and maybe for reasons of national pride, it was usually not put in terms of our current account surplus is is too high. Germans saying that would expose themselves to, you know, accusations that they're doing something that targets the current account. And of course, this is what the Germans have always rejected. The German standard answer to criticism. Of the current account has always been that you know the current account may be big but there's nothing we are doing policy wise that makes it so big it just happens to come out of the market system and as a result we are not responsible this said the current account surplus reflects this underinvestment, and the government could do a lot to improve that
0: so let's go to president donald trump now. Given the concerns about Germany's current account surplus, it sounds like there could be an intelligent criticism of German policy that the president could be making. I don't think he's making it, but what would that intelligent criticism be? What would the tweet say?
2: That's probably the hardest question you have asked so far. Maybe let me first say that there is a very interesting analogy between the traditional German pride in its exports and President Trump's criticism of Germany, both fundamentally economic nationalist positions and both really confuse the economics of what's going on. So, you know, if Germans are proud to be the export champions and view the current account surplus as a sign of national virility, strength, they do it because they think that it is the objective of economic policy to grab as big a share of international export markets as possible. And that's exactly the same that President Trump assumes. So they have completely the same mentality. And of course, that's not how we think about it as economists. That is a firm view, a corporate analogy, which is not good for countries, because as a country, what you want to do is have as big and diverse a consumption basket as possible. So, yes, you want to export, you want to produce to, you know, raise the resources that enable you to consume, but ultimately that does not translate into a surplus. Of course, the German view is that the reason why Germany is so successful at exporting is because of its virtues, of its discipline. You know, it makes very good cars, spends a lot of research funds in the car industry. It is hardworking. It saves a lot. And all of these fundamentally good attributes. And so, you know, the German attitude is, why don't you do as we do? And you'll get the same results, which, of course, is not true because not everyone can have a surplus. But the potential downside is that someone might have the idea, well, actually, the reason why you have this big surplus and you do so well in export markets is not because you have these fantastically better technology or harder working staff or bigger discipline and consumption, but you are actually cheating in some way, right? And that is the line that President Trump has taken. And so on that one, I don't think he's right. So it is indeed difficult to accuse the Germans of very much except complacency except for the fact that they are not really convinced this is a problem that they should really be doing something about. It is very hard to accuse the Germans of having willfully contributed to this problem, other than by staying uh, in the euro. So, back to your question. I think that short of appealing to Germany to exit the euro, which Trump could do, it would not be a very constructive tweet, but it would be a logically defensible tweet. Indeed, George Soros, who Trump loves, of course, has appealed to Germany to do that a few years ago. Short of that tweet, I think the intelligent tweet would be for German public spending to be raised, uh, particularly on investment goods and maybe... And that would also fit with, you know, the economic policy and ideology of the Trump administration. There could be a tweet that regulations should go down in Germany to invigorate
1: private investment. This sounds like a brand new Twitter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think I don't think the economists are going to be put in charge of, of President Donald Trump's Twitter feed anytime soon. How has the politics of, of trade? You know, we've been talking about exports as a virtue, but. You know, in Germany, we've seen a kind of rise in economic nationalism. How has the politics of trade been changing in sort of the last decade or so?
2: So, two factors are at play. One is that, for about six or seven years, at more or less the same time, when Germany returned, in a sense, as the economic champion of, of Europe, which it had it had n- not been in the early two thousands, both as a result of the of the euro crisis that made it look better in relative terms, and as a result of economic reforms. When Germany returned as as the economic champion, there was an immediate sense that this will not necessarily last. One thing that German policymakers maybe cannot be accused of is they do not take for granted that Germany's competitive position will simply continue in the future. And so, you know, partly for the right reasons, partly for the wrong reasons, they asked, what can we do to make this uh, sustainable? So while Germany was doing extremely well in the sense of coming back to full employment, of having these record export numbers, of having a reasonable recovery in economic growth there was the simultaneous sense that germany is challenged on several fronts one that it is possibly in danger of getting technologically behind and second that it is very dependent on specific industries and in danger of losing those. And there are precedents for that in Germany. So Germany had a reasonable consumer electronics industry which completely disappeared. It was wiped out by Japan. Germany tried to produce computers and that didn't work. There was a company called Nixdorf at some point that was integrated into Siemens and never really took off. And so the panic by German policymakers is that this might at some point happen to the few areas in which Germany, in their view, is still kind of the international champion. So that would be machine tools, other types of investment goods, the car industry, maybe the optical uh, industry. And then there's the sense, or maybe there's nothing left at that point. So that is one factor. And by the way, What really contributed to this sense is that Germany was behind in battery cell production and in sort of moving its car industry towards electric vehicles. So Tesla was viewed as a threat, probably still is, because it is the first American car in a German perspective, maybe with the exception of the Corvette, that you cannot dismiss as being kind of second rate, poorly manufactured and looking ugly, right? So Tesla... Looks great, drives great, and it's way ahead.
0: Sorry, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stop you because Chad is quietly having hysterics <laughs> over there in the corner. <laughs> has uh, Jerome just has, has he just deeply
1: everything he said is just about right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the of the
2: emergence of Tesla cut off the German anti-Americanism when it comes to cars at the knees, right? So you, you couldn't really argue with Tesla. So you have this sort of sense of insecurity the americans are si- finally starting to learn how to build proper cars at the same time china is catching up super fast and we don't really have industries that are in a sense ahead of everyone else i mean we have our fairly traditional industries we never really got into it in a in a, in a big way except for one or two software companies we don't have a search engine Platforms are completely dominated by the US. So there's sort of this general sense of of growing panic almost that what we are witnessing right now is sort of the last moment of industrial prowess before it will disappear forever and then we will become an agrarian economy or something like that, or maybe a tourist destination, except our weather is not as nice as in the south of Europe. So there's this sense. And then the second factor that contributed to this, what I've called, return of economic nationalism in Germany is the liberating effect of President Trump and his trade wars on what is now fair game, apparently, in terms of the types of tools that you're allowed to publicly entertain when it comes to defending yourself on all these things. So, President Trump is so far away from what the consensus was, both in economics and in politics, of how you develop economically, how you protect your industrial base, that there is lots of room to entertain more risky ideas, less conventional ideas, without going all the way to the Trumpian approach, which is, you know, extremely aggressive, tariffs-oriented, and so forth. And this is the room in which the German economy minister, uh, Peter Altmaier, really went with great energy in a paper that was uh, published in February, where he normally still checks all the boxes of pro-trade, pro-multilateralism, but at the same time, he really argues for a very aggressive industrial policy, for FDI protectionism, for a big involvement of the state in doing all these things with a Trumpian logic. And the logic is we got to defend our share in export markets and we need to make sure that those manufacturing jobs do not disappear to other countries. The astonishing thing about this document is that it basically treats the challenges from the United States and from, the, from China, even Japan, as symmetrical. So Germany and Europe are there, and they have to defend themselves towards
1: both sides. And I think that it is Trump that made the symmetry possible. Is there any positive outcome to this economic nationalism, or is it all just something to worry about?
2: The positive outcome is that it has reignited the debate about industrial policy. So it has reduced the taboo subject, and there is some value to free thinking in that area. So I think there is a case to be made that the state and manufacturing can work together more creatively. And One should think about state intervention in the economy in a more constructive way. The problem really, it's going
1: in the wrong direction, which effectively, it it is a form of protectionism. But there's no way this might be channeled into addressing some of the public investment problems and some of the things that are contributing to the underlying current account imbalances. It could. At this point, that was not the number one or even the number three or number four
2: policy conclusion that came out of that paper. So rather the opposite happened, which is that it distracted from the need for much higher public investment. There is also a sense that there is a political trade-off between the risks you can take in arguing for more direct state intervention in the economy via industrial policy and the political risks that you can take through increases in public spending and bigger public sector deficits. And of course, in my view, it is much more worse pushing on the macroeconomic inhibitions of the Germans in really rethinking the fiscal rules, for example, in a way that would enable higher public investment spending, then having this debate about industrial policy and even competition policy as a
1: way of solving our problems. German, thank you very much. Thank you so much.
0: That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Jeremy Zettelmeyer, the Dennis Weatherstone Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
1: Jeremy has also been doing a lot of economic research on this question of economic nationalism, and we'll be sure to post it at our website. That's www.tradetalkspodcast.com. Thank you also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio.
0: Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks.
2: Because? Because when it comes to underscores, three would be better than two. No, that was lame. <laughs> it was a good try, what though, you can the back spur it up. of the moment. What's yeah. your
0: argument for three?
2: We have three in the room. There's Chad, there's (laughs) Sumaya, and the guest. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Thanks, German.